0: Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk Podcast. Our guest today is Scott Dodson. Scott is the president and CEO of a company called Air Expanders. And Air Expanders works in the aesthetic space. Specifically, it has an FDA-approved system called Aeroform that's used in breast reconstruction surgery. Its, uh, its goal is to replace the current system of putting a temporary implant in the breast to that's used to expand tissue to, to make room for a permanent implant. Currently, that that room is created. By the injection of saline, and it's done over several weeks, and it's done at a doctor's office. Aeroform allows the patient to do that themselves, and I'll let Scott sort of tell the story as to how the technology works, but it's a fascinating place in the aesthetic space, an area where we're seeing increased exit activity, and it's a, an area I think we'll be talking about more in the future. So I want to get into this conversation with Scott Dodson, the CEO and president of Air Expander's. But I do want to also point out that we're, uh, we'll be having our Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit coming up in Boston on November 30th. You'll have some more information at the commercial break. Keep your ears open for that. But for now, enjoy this conversation with Scott Dodson, the president and CEO of Eric Spanders. Well, Scott Dodson, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, pleasure to be here.
0: Pleasure to have you. And definitely want to learn more about air expanders and your Aeroform tissue expander system. But I'd like to to learn a little bit more about our guests first. Uh, you have a, uh, an extensive uh, background in, in medtech. Can you can you tell us what, what brought you into the sector and uh, what are some of the stops you've had along the way?
1: Absolutely. You know, I've always had a keen interest in uh, technology. Uh, been in the medical device space for about twenty seven years I uh, had the good fortune to start my career in the medical device space with at the at that uh, current time was a uh, medical nobody by the name of Boston Scientific who has gone on to become just a he- hemith in the space uh, but in those days it was a little privately held company and had the chance to uh, you know really play a, 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 a nice role in in helping the company move forward and uh, given the, the stage of the organization, had the opportunity to play a lot of different roles. So I've run a few different divisions. I've uh, worked in the international group for a a number of years. And and, uh, uh, after leaving Boston Scientific, after 17 great years, went on to run a orthopedic business uh, co-located between Dallas, Texas, and Verona, Italy uh, called OrthoFix. Mm -hmm. Uh, We then packed that group up to sell it off in the support of the spine business and for about the last eight or ten years, I've been in uh, California uh, running uh, mid- and small-cap companies as the president and CEO. And I've got to tell you, Tom, in, in all the years I've spent in this space, uh, I, the current assignment that I have is by far and away the most rewarding one that, uh, that I've had to date.
0: Uh, when did you join Air Expanders?
1: Sure. So I've been with Air Expanders going on eight years now. And uh, started when the company had just completed its uh, very first in human uh, use trial. And since that point in time, we've now completed four additional trials with over seventeen peer-reviewed publications, and you know, really accolades from from all over the world with regards to the space that we play in, which is breast cancer reconstruction.
0: And in coming into the company, what were uh, what were your challenges then, and, and have they played out as you anticipated they were? The 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 this space has uh, seen a lot of attention from investors at one point, point. Uh, and, and we can get into this in a, a bit later. But also, I think there's been a, a dearth of interest as of late. But there may be a resurgence. What what have the eight years been like?
1: Sure. So you know, Tom, when I first started, the biggest concern that I had. Uh, joining the company was boy. If the product did what it was supposed to do, you know how are we going to make enough? And roll the tape forward over seven years, and now that we have definitively proven that the product works uh, with you know beyond uh, beyond anyone's doubt, uh, it, it it's back to the the manufacturing piece, which is what we're working really hard on right now. So gone are the days where we are asked, does it work and can you prove it? And really, at the present time, the only thing that we're asked is when can I get my hands on it? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a good position to be in. But at the, you know, at the same time, it really raises the bar because we want to make sure that every product that leaves our premises is of the highest quality possible.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about Aeroform. What is it and how does it work and what are its origins?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, our device works in the areas I mentioned, of breast cancer reconstruction. After a woman has a mastectomy and a large part of her breast and tissue has been removed, If she desires to recover her uh, pre-mastectomy shape, um, then one of the most prevalent uh, procedures that she can uh, take place is uh, called a breast cancer reconstruction. And in order to achieve that, since there's really no resident pocket to hold a permanent implant, a pocket has to be created. So the way that that's done today before our device came along was basically a water balloon or a saline tissue expander was stuffed up under the chest muscle. And then uh, the skin was closed up around that, and the patient would then have to come back every 7 to 14 days and have a needle stuck into that device, and it filled with saline um, over and over and over again on a biweekly basis until the device had stretched the the muscle and stretched the uh, overlying skin to create a pocket that a permanent implant could go within. And as archaic and barbaric as that sounds, that has been the gold standard for the last 40 years. Now, one great interesting thing about our device, that, that, that the genius behind this is a, a Bay Area plastic surgeon. And a big part of his practice was and still is breast cancer reconstruction. So, you know, not only is it not fun for the patient to have a needle stuck in them every couple of weeks and have all of this pain administered, but it's really not a, not, not a great uh, thing for the surgeon either. So uh, Dr. Jacobs, uh, Dr. Dan Jacobs is an avid cyclist and uh, was out for a bike ride one weekend and had a flat tire, and pulled a CO2-based canister out of his backpack to fill the tire, and that was his eureka moment. And his eureka moment was really around, boy, what if we could put a small little CO2 reservoir inside of this temporary tissue expander that could be communicated with externally by some type of remote control device and have the woman expand on her own without having to come back to the surgeon's office as frequently uh, or having any needle stuck into her at all, and that was really the genesis of this device. So, uh, really a credit to Dr. Jacobs and the in the early advanced engineering groups that that worked on this terrific design.
0: How challenging was the development of this device after you joined uh, to to um, uh, um, to further the, the product, to refine the product, and to, and to get it through clinical trials? Because it sounds like. Uh, you're almost um, taking an existing technology, just really making one change, one very clever change, one very important change. But was were the 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 regulatory hurdles high, uh, given that you're you're sort of already operating within an existing uh, existing procedure?
1: Well, as with all devices, go in the FDA, things change as you go forward. So um, you know, we completed our our first couple of clinical trials in Australia with um, the first generation of the device. Uh, As you go in these trials, you learn a few things about the device that you want to make improvements on. So we made additional improvements as we went forward, um, improvements to the dose controller, which is the item that the patient uses to hold outside of her body to signal a very precise and small release or a puff of CO2 into the device itself, um, you know, as well as some device iterations as well. So, on the strength of our first couple of trials, it gave us the ability to get our TGA approval in Australia. TGA is their version of the FDA uh, in, in that country. And it gave us the ability to uh, secure our CE mark, making the device commercially viable in Europe as well. Um, we then took that data to the FDA and uh, requested that we uh, move forward with a, with a, a, another uh, trial And the FDA uh, had some uh, very uh, clear direction to us with regard to the type of trial that they wanted to see. They wanted to see a randomized control trial versus the existing technology that's in the field. So we embarked on an even bigger trial and the only randomized control trial in this space uh, to which the FDA even helped us select the endpoints and the statistical analysis plan and went forward with that study. That study we completed uh, just a a couple of years ago and used that as our FDA submission. Now, the FDA, along the process, determined that uh, our device, while it does what saline tissue expanders do, and that's expand tissue, ours does it in quite a different way, uh, meaning that we have an onboard reservoir of CO2 and an external, you know, dose controller that the patients can use. So they recommended that we go down the path what's called a de novo application. De novo is Latin for for new. So uh, we went down that path. It it took us uh, a bit longer than we anticipated. But on the other side, the data was so uh, convincing uh, that the FDA uh, granted uh, our um, uh, approval uh, or our clearance, rather, uh, at the end of 2015. So we started putting together our sales organization in the U.S., and uh, started going after this market in a very controlled way, similar to how we went after the Australian market about a year and a half prior to that.
0: How did you find your way to Australia initially?
1: It was one really of, of, uh, of, of two points. Number one, we could get into human clinical trials earlier than we could get into in most other parts of the world. And number two, the data receptivity out of the Australian market um, is, is almost second to none. The practice of medicine is so similar between Australia and the United States. The surgeons are trained similarly. The uh, disease etiology is similar. The practice of medicine is similar. And, and uh, even some of the reimbursement schemes are similar to what they are in the United States as well. So for all those reasons, we opted to go to Australia and uh, you know really get our early days experience and not only did that help us come from a clinical perspective but it really helped us from a commercial perspective as well it gave us probably a two-year head start on messaging, branding, positioning, training, etc all of these key things that many companies stumble on when you enter into a big market like the United States we had already worn a path uh, with those items in a target market that was much smaller which gave us great confidence moving into the United States.
0: What was the trial design in Australia? Similar to the US?
1: Similar to the US, uh, you know, just with regards to endpoints. Fortunately, our endpoints are very binary. Our primary endpoints of all of, on all of our trials have been um, that you're able to get the patient expanded to the point of implant exchange, because as you may know, uh, these devices, tissue expanders, are temporary devices they're put in and their express purpose is to create a space or create a pocket that a permanent implant can go in. So Mm -hmm. uh, once they've achieved that, they come out and a permanent implant is put in their place. So our trial, uh, our primary endpoints have uh, have always been successful expansion to implant exchange. That's really binary. You're either able to do it or not. Now, our our secondary endpoints uh, traditionally are time, pain, and ease of use from most objective to most subjective.
0: And that's why I was surprised that there's a control involved. So was the control uh, a standard saline um, device, saline-based device?
1: Yeah, for the the U.S. trial it was. It was a two-to-one randomization uh, with 150 subjects, 100 of which were uh, uh, our device and 50 of which were the saline device. And each site was randomized in a two-to-one format so that when patients arrived, Um, They weren't sure which device they were going to get. And this is one of the interesting learnings that we had, just the psychological Mm. thing of this, is that when patients went into their surgeon and drew that card that day on which device they were going to have used, the ones that drew the Aeroform card or our device, um, you know, were high-fiving their partner like they won the lottery. They knew that they weren't going to (laughs) have to tuck into them, et cetera. And uh, unfortunately, there were a lot of tears uh, on the other selection, uh, fortunately for us, I think women are are uh, tremendous uh, advocates for other women that are that are going through as well, and all opted to retain uh, and, and stay with the trial because they knew that their data were going to benefit women behind them.
0: Sure, that seems like an enormous trial and and a and a lot of uh, layers with the control, given that this is a device that, as you said, really performs a a, a function that that is clear to measure. And also, isn't permanent. It's not something that's going to be in there five or ten years. Were you surprised at the uh, the the size of the trial the FDA re- required?
1: You know, um, it's just given uh, the, the way the FDA has gone in certain years. Or, you know, we're not completely uh, surprised. Um, you know, because this device is in the plastic surgery space. The FDA has been um, uh, super cautious, and I think in some cases, rightfully so, on, on new devices that enter the segment. Um, so, um, you know, it certainly could have been a lot worse, uh, but I think now that uh, now that it's in the rearview mirror for us, unequivocally, uh, you know, we've been able to pass really what is one of the highest barriers uh, that's out there, um, you know, with regards to, you know, medical device um, um, uh, improvement, uh, just with regards to getting through the trial, um, making sure that the endpoints are met, and really, you know, hitting all of the marks along the way to, to, to grant us our uh, approval here in the United States.
0: Hey, everyone, this is Tom. Excuse this interruption, but I did want to tell you about the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. It's happening in Boston on November 30th, and this is a MedTech Talk podcast. It's a MedTech podcast. I get that. But digital health, obviously, is penetrating every area within healthcare, and if you're looking for a perspective on how this is impacting payers, how technology is impacting payers and providers... How innovation is being received by hospital groups and insurers, the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit is a great place to stop. One day, you will be in and out. Just go to healthogy.com. We'll have the agenda up shortly. Healthagy is spelled with the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y.com. Healthogy is a great company that puts on the MedTech Conference and the Digital Healthcare Innovation Conference, as well as the MedTech Talk podcast. So uh, go to healthag. Check out information for the Digital Health Innovation Summit. We hope to see you in Boston. Now back to this conversation. So, w- what is the next challenge, uh, commercially? Do, do you, well, first of all, is this is this a reimbursed procedure? Do you have to get codes to, to, to have this paid for? Or is this private pay?
1: Tom, Tom, that's a great point. One of the most exciting things about this is that um, the codes for Breast reconstruction with tissue expansion are already established. Not only that, but, but, but it gets even better for patients. Um, the Women's Health Care Act of 1998 mandates that if a woman has uh, a positive diagnosis of breast cancer and opts to have reconstructive surgery, that her plan, whether it's private pay or Medicare, must pay for that reconstruction full stop. Even, wow. if, even if she has a diagnosis on one side, and opts to have the other side removed prophylactically for symmetry or for other reasons, the plan must pay for that as well. So it's one of the only areas in medicine I know of where there have been uh, pro rata increases in both the facility fee and the in the physician fee for each of the last seven years. So uh, this is a, a very uh, positive thing for women. It's very pro choice. It, it it puts the decision in the hands of the woman on what she feels as though is, is in her best interest and uh, you, you know really allows her to make that decision. But but you know Tom I've got to say that, that, that one of the unfortunate pieces here is that still here even in two thousand and seventeen, um, you know, one of the unfortunate parts is that still only maybe a third of women are being told that reconstruction's an option for them. Really? So, It is really unbelievable, and and there have been multiple studies out there, and and women that are of color and uh, women that are of lower socioeconomic standing are told even less frequently. Now, this is starting to change. Uh, We worked very closely with the American Society of Plastic Surgery in Washington over the last couple of years, and most recently uh, we helped uh, move through a bill called the uh, Breast Cancer Patient Education Act. And this act, uh, you know, makes it mandatory for uh, patients to uh, be consented by their breast surgeons that there are these great options available and have them uh, refer them to a plastic surgeon to talk about these options. And we know that once a woman gets in front of a plastic surgeon and they talk about these viable options and the uh, financial issues are basically taken off the table because of the um, uh, Women's Health Care Act in 1998, um, certainly more of them choose reconstruction than not. Um, so, you know, we're very much advocates of making sure that women understand these are not only options for them, but these are their rights as well. And, uh, you, you know, let the woman and her uh, family and, and or her, sister, um, you know, make the choice on, on, on what's right for her body.
0: You can answer this question as as you want, but I'm, I'm just curious. The, the only uh, entity that I would see that would... Be incented toward not notification would be the insurer, whatever entity had to pay for it. Why wouldn't a physician pass on this news? I mean, it seemed it would be the benefit of their patient. Uh, they wouldn't, you know, it would, it, they would be able to have a referral system and, and the benefits of that network. What is the what is the number one reason that uh, this information isn't being passed on?
1: You know, Tom, I'm not sure that there's any, you know, just one single reason for that. I know that uh, you know these these patients are in a very complicated state at the time that they've been told that they have cancer and they have to have it removed and their life is being put on hold and 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 it you know and it may be uh, you know too much for some of them to handle you know at that point in time uh, perhaps the surgeon uh, believes that it's in the patient's best interest to first recover from the cancer uh, before they seek to have the reconstruction done but most reconstructions done at the same setting that the that the mastectomy is done uh, at least. At least here in the United States, but again, I think that um, you know as these issues have become uh, more of a lightning rod in the public health arena, which they are now, um, you know women are now are, are now seeking um, reconstruction as a part of their treatment continuum once they're diagnosed mm-hmm. with breast cancer, and I think that that will continue and I think that the numbers over the last five years show that breast reconstruction is on the increase and in knowledge of women about breast reconstruction is on the increase as well. This is probably one of the most socially active uh, patient constituency groups that I've ever seen out there. Uh, these women seek information about their disease. They have advocates that seek information about the disease, and it's a very uh, well-traveled, well-populated network.
0: And I, w- I would guess the, the weekly visits at the the sailing devices would probably be a hurdle for someone else who also, you know, after after recovering from this horrible disease, you know, has probably missed more work than they're able to and to go through that a procedure like that again that requires a weekly visit would be would be daunting. So I, I, I'm this is kind of a softball for you, but I assume Eric banners where you can avoid that weekly visit is going to be hugely appealing to those who, who might not otherwise be able to make those trips.
1: Without without a doubt it will be Tom and thanks for uh, that by the way. Um <laughs> The, the, you know, the reality is this, is that hardly anyone lives right around the corner from their surgeon, and it's, it's disruptive uh, to take, you know in, in some cases, a half a day off of work or out of the home to, to go to the surgeon's office and go through that waiting period, only to know that at the end of that, you're going to have a needle put into your chest and a big bunch of saline pushed into it, and then for two or three days, it's going to feel like an elephant sitting on your chest. And right after you get uh, feeling you know, you know, a little bit better, you've got to start gearing up emotionally again because you know you got to go back in about another six or seven days. so it's 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 daunting for women um, to, to to have to go through this again and again and again. And one of the things I'm not sure we paid enough attention to in the early days, but that has it has really proven itself is that the modicum of control that patients gain, by using just our little handheld dose controller and really playing an active role in helping themselves recover their bodies from the ravages of breast cancer is just incredible. They feel a part of the the healing process, and they're incredibly motivated to stay very compliant and adherent to their surgeon's uh, orders with regards to dosing. With our device, they can dose three times a day or uh, a maximum of three times a day, with a three-hour lockout between doses. So even if they wanted to put in more than, you know, three small puffs of 10 cc's, you know, they just can't do it. But uh, when we get the dose controllers back and we analyze the data that's out of them, it's like these women are looking at their watches, and every three hours they're basically pushing the button, which is great for them. It gets them to full expansion, uh, you know, in our trial uh, in, 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 in at least half the time Than it takes them to get to full expansion with saline without the need for needles and without the need for as frequent office visits. Now, you know, with that being said, we're not telling the surgeon or telling the patient never to come back because I think that it's it's, it's, it's just good medical practice to see this patient back occasionally. But the nature of those visits are changed dramatically if they're not uh, having to worry about getting stuck with a needle and you know, undressing from the waist up and, you know, getting ready for that ordeal time and time again.
0: Sure. And and how is this, how is Aeroform being uh, received by the clinical societies and by the physicians? Does it um, diminish their reimbursement at all? Or is is the code and the payment the same? And they have the benefit of now having these visits, as you noted, are probably a lot shorter, uh, allowing them to see more patients than they were before.
1: You know, Tom, that's exactly right. And and in, in, in plastic surgery, uh, time is money, as I think it is in, in almost every medical practice. And you know, in this case, the fewer times that they have to see these patients, then there's another patient in their waiting room—a a Botox, a tummy tuck, a mommy makeover, an augmentation, some other type of reconstructive procedure that they can be seeing and or treating, and you know, getting paid for, uh, which uh, they, they basically cannot. Uh, you know when they're um, doing these injections, so it's it's uh, very advantageous for the surgeon. It's clearly advantageous for the uh, for the patient, and it's advantageous for the hospital as well. Many of these women are immunocompromised patients, meaning they may be going through concurrent radiotherapy and chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And the last thing you want to do to these patients is introduce a needle into their body when they're already immunocompromised. So the more that you can eliminate needle sticks um, generally speaking the the you know the, the, it lessens the probability of you introducing some foreign antibody to the patient uh, through through that needle stick which is now uh, not uh, not happening.
0: That's a great point. You're you're helping him just by keeping him out of a hospital and a doctor's office for that matter. Yep. That's um, right. what what about the reimbursement is that is the payment change at all?
1: No, the payment doesn't change at all. The surgeon gets the same amount that uh, he would okay. get for a saline device with this device. And CMS has established that code uh, quite a while ago. And, uh, you know, breast reconstruction with tissue expander is still the most popular version of reconstruction therapy that's out there for women that are going through um, this uh, this ordeal.
0: So what's next for air expanders? Are you... uh capitalized, to have enough capital to, to move forward with a commercial launch? Are you raising more money? And, and I know you raised some money uh, in, in Australia on the public markets there. Talk about that process a bit and in, in what's next for you on the capital front.
1: Sure. So, you know, we went public on the Australian market back in June of 2015. We have since completed two additional rounds of financing uh, on the Australian market. Uh, and most recently here over the last 30 days, have added in a, a a debt vehicle from Oxford uh, Financial to help uh, you know bolster our, our balance sheet moving forward here uh, as well. So uh, we feel as though that we are sufficiently capitalized to execute against our plan of of uh, you know really expanding our reach here in the United States and uh, you know putting the company on the path to our larger financial objectives. We continue to build out our sales organization here domestically. Uh, And we are looking at uh, other markets internationally to start expanding into as well. We'll do our first um, European cases here over the next 30 or 60 days. And we've already started filing our our regulatory submissions in some of the key Asia-Pacific markets as well. So the company is really set up nicely. We have done market development um, in order to put us in a position that by the time the technology is available in a certain market, we have a core group of surgeons that already have experience with it and are, who are already speaking on it and who are already published on the device as well. So, uh, you know, we're building a, a, a great base of support. And the most important thing out of this is that surgeons have good experiences and the patients have great outcomes. And I think that if we continue to concentrate on those two areas, then the rest of the business will take care of itself.
0: Where has your capital other than the australia markets where where else have you raised money? It looks like you've gotten by without any vC money if i'm I'm looking at your board of directors and i and I know Barry Cheskin from our uh, our ophthalmology conferences uh, so I know Barry well, but I don't see any vCs on here have you Have you not raised any VC capital at all
1: we we, we have and, and and it's been long enough on our board where the VCs have cycled off of the board right now, so the the two largest VC holders are vivo uh, ventures. Uh, or or Vivo Capital out of Palo Alto, mm-hmm. and GBS sure. Venture Partners out of Melbourne, Australia. Uh, there's also uh, Prolog Capital out of St. Louis, and Heron Capital out of uh, Indianapolis, and then uh, Correlation Ventures as well. So they all okay. participated in the early uh, venture stages of financing for the company, and they all fully participated in the IPO as well with with no uh, with no sell down. So uh, we, we've had great supporting. Uh, venture capital partners who have been with us every step of the way and now just just an exceptional uh, register of, uh, of, of 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 partners uh, on the on the uh, public side um you know with our with our portfolio as well
0: great and a final question you're you're in Palo Alto your headquarters in Palo Alto you know Medtech Center Tech Center what is it what is it like leading a company that uh, is, a, is a med tech company, but also it is, has more of an aesthetics bent. Is it is it a different kind of company? Is it the same experience that you had running other companies? And, and what sort of culture have you tried to build there?
1: You know, running a company in Silicon Valley is unlike anything that I've ever uh, experienced. Um, your exposure to just the, 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 the talent it's here in every single part of the business and your ability to draft off of other innovation that's going on, whether it's in the medical device space or not, is uh, really kind of intoxicating. And uh, you know, to be able to network with individuals in so many other areas that are, that are transforming so many business groups and, and market spaces uh, gives you a lot of tremendous ideas which you can impart on, on running your company as well. And we tried to do that. Um, We are not your run-of-the-mill medical device company where you just come out with an idea. It's sort of what everybody else does, and you kind of go down the road. Um, It it is incredibly satisfying to be able to help people recover their bodies and their lives after the ravages of breast cancer. And, uh, you know, we often have patients that come in and speak about their experiences and um, surgeons that come in and speak about what it means to them as as well. And it it, it causes us every day when we come to work to really look at things through a different set of lenses knowing that what you do every single day impacts the life of patients and impacts families that are out there. And given the prevalence of this disease with one of eight women developing breast cancer during the course of their lives, chances are somebody we know at some point in time is gonna be on the table and could benefit from our technology. And that's really, really important to us. So, you know, we want to make sure that that we can stay cutting edge, that we can stay personal, that we can stay, uh, you know, one step ahead of, of of what's going on and stay current and not fall into the trap of so many large medical device companies that just become kind of victims of the institutions that they serve.
0: Well, it's a, it's a great time to be running a company like this with, uh, with a commercial launch on the way. It must be a, a lot of fun. And uh, I appreciate you sharing the story on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Tom. Much appreciated.
0: Scott Dodson of Air Expanders. Thank you for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. Fascinating space. The aesthetics area is. It's one where we're seeing a lot of M&A activity. And uh, we wish you the best of luck in the future. MedTech Talk podcast listeners, thanks for coming along on this ride. If you wouldn't mind dropping me an email, letting me know how I'm doing, my email is tom at healthogy.com. It's the word health, followed by letters E-G-Y dot com. Track me down on Twitter at MedTechTom. You'll find me there tweeting about everything and anything, including the MedTech industry and the Boston Red Sox. Finally, uh, tell your friends about the MedTech Talk podcast or give us a ranking on iTunes. Uh, that really does help people find the podcast. So uh, thanks again for your support. Thanks for your time listening. And tune in next week for another tale of innovation on the MedTech Talk podcast.